All rise. The Honorable, the Chief Justice and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina is now sitting for the dispatch of business. God save the state and this honorable court. Good morning, everyone. Um, Justice Irvin has uh, experienced a, a exposure uh, to COVID, so he is uh, joining us with a mask this morning, uh, as advised by his physician. Um, but hopefully, uh, the results will all be negative. It's a test we all want to fail. So, uh, but good morning, everyone. Uh, our first case this morning is KNC Technologies. Uh, versus uh, Tutton et al. And we will hear from the appellant. Good morning, Your Honor. Matthew George Otis here on behalf of the appellant, KNC Technologies. I have my co-counsel here, Alex Turner. I will be making all the argument, though, Your Honor, and I would like to uh, reserve five minutes for rebuttal. My client is also here, the managing member and the majority owner, Ms. Newfer, sitting right next, right down there, Your Honor. Um, this case is about, in two words, faith and finality. That's the two ways you could describe what we're here for today, the primary issues or issue. Faith that when you institute the judicial proceedings through a lawsuit, and then there is a consent order that that finality will be upheld. Faith in the system that when you engage the judicial system and it's resolved, that that is a final judgment, Your Honors. So let's take you back to really what brought us here today. As Mr. Tutton, who sitting over there, his employment with KNC back in 2006 through 2013. Before you go too far down the path, can you help me understand why these are not interlocutory orders? And can you help me understand what substantial right would be uh, at stake uh, with regard to these orders? Sure, Your Honor. Thank you for the question. Um, these are uh, substantial rights uh, associated with my client in the summary judgment order denying them the customer's restrictions. Well, before, before you go any further there, isn't, doesn't this court have any number of cases that say that an order that, is de that denies a summary judgment motion is not appealable inter on an interlocutory basis? Your Honor, that, that is true, but if this goes to a substantial right. Right, and the, but the substantial right, the two, the two things that you set forth in your brief are first, that you lose the right to pursue your claims and that there's a decision that's final as to claims. I thought we looked at whether a judgment was appealable on the basis of the judgment as a whole and not on a claim-specific basis. Is that wrong? Your Honor, I wouldn't say that is wrong, but in order to have a final judgment into this case, let's say we go forward with the remaining claims, Your Honor, and we are successful on those claims or not successful. 
At that point, we would need to appeal a jury verdict along with the summary judgment motion, Your Honor, and we could have and, potential and why is why isn't that the appropriate thing to there do? There can be inconsistencies. In the, in the, have you argued in your brief anywhere that there's a risk of inconsistent uh, verdicts? Uh, Your Honor, that is not included in our brief. Aren't you required to make such a showing as a precondition for the court to have jurisdiction? Your Honor, um, when it comes to having a summary judgment ruled upon and it going to a substantial right, Your Honor, that, that addresses having the inconsistent verdicts. But, and you're, it, but, and I did but, not, you're but the correct. court, at least as I understand it, and correct me if you think I'm misunderstanding, isn't it true that in order for the court to have jurisdiction over your appeal from an interlocutory order, you have to show and explain why a substantial right is affected by the uh, order in question. Well, Your Honor, the, the substantial right in this situation is the loss not only of the claims, but also of the ruling of the court in the sense of the, of the law that it's applying, Your Honor, and it being the law of the case. And we're, it's our argument that that is not appropriate. And it's at this time, in order to move forward with the case appropriately with the jury verdict, for that law of the case to be properly reviewed. Have you argued what you just told me anywhere in your brief? Well, well we did in the brief in the sense that this outdoor lighting case and the framework of that as the basis of the, the order of summary judgment was improper, Your Honor. Well, is it your view that any order that is erroneous therefore affects a substantial right? Well, not any, Your Honor. I don't think we can take it that far, obviously. Well, what's the difference between where we can't go and what you just said? Well, Your Honor, obviously I can't expound upon every possible situation we could have. I can only speak to the situation we have in front of us, what we're here for today. And the substantial right in this situation is my client had a summary judgment motion ruled against them by applying the improper law to the case. And can you cite me any case that says that a summary judgment motion that is denied on the basis of an improper understanding of the law constitutes a substantial right sufficient to support an interlocutory appeal from that order? And Your Honor, I don't have a case here in front of me, and I do apologize for that. Okay, um, thank you. To that point. May I continue? So what brings us here, once again, is the prior case, Tutton 1, my client brought a lawsuit against Mr. Tutton. And that was associated with his employment from 2006 through 2013, and more specifically, his second stint of employment in which he signed a non-compete agreement. In that non-compete, he agreed he wouldn't compete with my client for three years and also would not uh, divulge any trade secrets. Now, during his employment, it is undisputed, as indicated in his affidavit he later signed, that he was breaching that non-compete. After that was discovered, after he resigned from my client, my client brought a lawsuit. And during this lawsuit, we did, it was discovered that Mr. Tutton was tantamount to industrial espionage. He gave access to my client's computer system to his later employer, Newtor. And out of that, in order to settle this matter, Mr. Tutton executed an affidavit admitting all of these things. That is part of the record, Your Honors. And also, what was executed 
was a consent order that is wholly distinct and separate from the settlement agreement. In that consent order, he was not to contact any suppliers of my client. There's a list of suppliers who's not to contact and customers of my client. Now, soon thereafter, he started breaching that, Your Honors. That wasn't discovered until much later by my client, which brings us here today. So faith and finality. What does this deal with? The consent order was a final judgment. It resolved all the issues between Mr. Tutton and KNC. It was a final judgment on the merits, and it should be afforded. Does it contain any kind of finding of liability? Well, Your Honor, it, it finds in the order that he is prohibited. It, it orders him not to do certain things. Correct. But is there a finding of liability, or is there any finding of disputed fact? Well, there is findings, especially in the paragraph with the, in the, judge, the judge's order about the affidavits that it reviewed and the but actions there, of there, Mr. There are findings, at least as I read them, that the affidavits say A, B, C, D, and E. Are there any findings that says that those allegations are true? Well, there's a finding in, in the order, Your Honor, that um, Mr. Tutton, if you look at the affidavit, right. at the order, let me pull that up real quick, Your Honor. I don't have it here. My apologies, Your Honor, I don't have it here in front of me. But in the order that um, the facts were necessary for the entry of the order by reviewing the affidavits and the verified complaint, then the order was entered and restricting him from that order, okay. restricting those actions. So, so that's, that's your basis for arguing that this is a final judgment on the merits? The court reviewed the facts, reviewed the affidavits, which were part and partial to the prior preliminary injunction. Your Honor, you've got to remember this is a permanent injunction that was entered. And so piggybacking off of that, those facts that were presented to the court, it found that the permanent injunction was appropriate with the consent of Mr. Tutton. Why isn't it appropriate to treat the consent order as a contract instead of an adjudication on the merits? Well, Your Honor, th this is an interesting point because it can be viewed as a contract. It can be. The court, there are cases that say that. But it also, there are also cases that say when it is a final adjudication on the merits and res dissolves or resolves all the disputes amongst the parties, is afforded collateral estoppel. There's also those lines of cases. And the distinction here and the distinction in those cases is this order is not a mere recital of the settlement agreement. The settlement agreement had a lot more into it. In fact, it had a $5,000 payment. It also had uh, his requirement to be a cooperating witness, which was fulfilled by him signing the affidavit, um, which was later used in other litigation against his uh, subsequent employer, Newtor. So he fulfilled those obligations in the settlement agreement. But the consent order specifically deals with his prohibition of contacting suppliers and contacting customers. Well, since you say there are cases that go both ways, how should we draw the distinction in this court in terms of when that should be the case? It is on the merits as opposed to a contract. Sure. It should be. The distinction is if it, the consent order was merely a recitation, if it literally just took the settlement agreement and said, I see the settlement agreement, here are the elements of the settlement agreement, entered as an order. That's the distinction. 
and, and you see the cases that are cited by the um, defendant, those cases dealt with a rubber stamp and purely no findings of fact, nothing whatsoever, and literally was taking the settlement agreement and just putting it into a consent order, that language. In our situation, the consent order actually it doesn't even have a, it doesn't have a lot of what's in the settlement agreement. In fact, the settlement agreement's mention of the restrictions does not define customers, doesn't define suppliers at all. The settlement agreement is distinct from the consent order in that regard. The consent order goes further. It defines the, sell the suppliers and lists those specific suppliers, and it also has for the customers the time period that is supposed to be considered for what is a customer. Were the terms of the consent order all drafted by the parties and merely submitted to the business court, or did the business court add anything on its own volition? Your Honor, um, I am not familiar with Titan One. I was not involved with Tutton One directly as counsel, uh, but from in looking at the order and looking at the settlement agreement, and uh, it looks like from what I can glean from that is that the, the court entered the Tutton One consent order on its own volition. It does not even reference the settlement agreement. It does say the parties have resolved the disputes, but it doesn't indicate that the judge actually saw the settlement agreement. It only references that it saw the affidavits and the uh, the complaint, the verified complaint, and its review. Does the consent order contain a waiver of findings of fact and conclusions of law? It does, Your Honor. And what impact should that have on our analysis, if any? I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I was going to bring that up later, Your Honor. Um, Your Honor, parties have right to waive rights in a contract. So if you view the consent order as a contract, parties have a right to waive contractual obligations or later review. The cases are very clear in that regard, particularly when you have a situation like this, where it's a consent order, advice of counsel was involved, Your Honor, and this was a judicial proceeding. This wasn't just merely a contract that was signed either at the beginning of the relationship or at an ending of a relationship. This was an, a document that was created out of litigation, Your Honor, and so with that, it has, should have a higher scrutiny in terms of holding Mr. Tutton account for that waiver. It was not a situation where there was un, un, uneven bargaining power or other uh, public policy concerns. This is about as much of an arm's length transaction as you can have. This was a litigation, settlement agreement, and consent order. So with that in mind, his waiver of it, he cannot later argue that the terms of the consent order are improper or that the, so for some reason they shouldn't be valid. That goes to the waiver, Your Honor. Could you have pursued a contempt order out of the consent order? We certainly could have, Your Honor. Um, that would only bring to or hold him account as to those restrictions in the consent order. It would not bring into play unfair and deceptive trade practices or other torts associated with that, nor would it have brought into play ITEC, the other party, in essence, uh, as well. It would just be as to Mr. Titan. So we could have done that specifically to Mr. Tutton, filed a motion for contempt or show cause, filed a motion for show cause, um, and then pursued the other litigation as well. But out of sort of the judicial, I guess making it more streamlined, they just filed a lawsuit, chose to file a lawsuit, which uh, as a party we have a right to do that and bring all the claims that we could uh, given what Mr. Tutton's actions were in the intervening years, not just 
breaching the consent order, but also his unfair and deceptive trade practices and the torts that were brought, Your Honor. Um, on this question of waiver, <laughs> um, isn't it true as a general matter that a court always has the authority to determine whether the terms of a contract are unenforceable as against public policy? Well, Your Honor, that's an interesting question. I, I, I will say this. Um, in this situation, when you have it born out of litigation, and it's not a contract just merely by two parties without judicial review and without the assistance of counsel and without litigation being involved, because I can't think of a more arm's length transaction than when there's a lawsuit filed and you have two parties who are going at each other. And so public policy concerns in this specific situation are simply minimal at best. Because when you think about it, what should be done in this contract interpretation, it should be just whether or not the terms are ambiguous or not. And the public policy concerns are minimal, unlike in outdoor lighting, which that was not a case where the situation was, it was a litigation born contract or born agreement. It was a, an agreement amongst the parties before litigation occurred. And so there's more concern and there's more, I think judicial review by public policy is more implicated in those situations. Because in those situations, parties don't have the assistance of counsel a lot of times. There is not litigation involved and they're not at loggerheads yet. As I think we mentioned in our brief, they're sort of the honeymoon stage. And so with that, you can have parties who don't necessarily understand it and really did not have the proper advice of counsel in those situations. So public policy could be more implicated in those situations, sure. So then is your answer, it sounds like what you're saying is the waiver doesn't prohibit him from subsequently arguing that certain provisions are unenforceable as against public policy, but that in this particular instance, they are not against public policy. Well, well yes and no, Your Honor. <laughs> Sorry, I, I apologize if I misunderstood you. Uh, the way this contract should be reviewed, if we get past collateral estoppel, which I would argue you don't, but if you get past collateral estoppel, well, what should be reviewed is just generalized contract principles. You know, ambiguities or not ambiguities, Your Honor. And with this specific contract that we're talking about here and the public policy concerns that Judge McGuire brought up in his summary judgment order, those are not implicated in this situation. The public policies as to restrictions on trade and the restrictive covenants, those are not implicated because of the factual situation we have in our case. Do, do, do you know of any case in which this court or any other court has varied the level of scrutiny of a contract like this based upon whether the parties were represented by counsel at the time the contract was entered into? Well, I can't think of any cases off, offhand, Your Honor, but I will say this, that the cases that are cited certainly by Judge McGuire and by the defendant, none of those cases were indicated that they were represented by counsel. Well, and, and I guess that's my ultimate question. Is there anything in the case law dealing with the enforceability of covenants not to compete that makes the nature of the review that is conducted of those uh, contracts dependent upon whether the parties were had the advice of counsel at the time they entered into it? I certainly don't think it's dependent upon it, but the public policy when you talk about these covenants, inherently, it's especially the employer-employee situation, it's the beginning of the employment. And so because of that, 
there is an inherent public policy issue of, well, of course you want the person to get the job, right? You want to protect the employee in that situation because of the uneven bargaining power that is inherent in that relationship, Your Honor. And so when you have that, there, that's where the public policy concerns come in, at least the employer-employee. Now, in this situation, Judge McGuire found it as a hybrid, so it wasn't purely employer-employee. But with public policy concerns in the employer-employee, it, it, you're right, it doesn't necessarily say it's because of counsel, but it's the situation that the, that contract was born out of and those restrictions. Uh, counsel, um, you mentioned in passing collateral estoppel. Was there anything in the record showing that you actually argued that in your summary judgment motion? Well, and, and so, <laughs> thank you for bringing that up, Your Honor. What that, where that came out of and where that was originally argued was in the motion to dismiss, Your Honor. And the motion to dismiss order was then incorporated in the summary judgment order. In fact, Judge McGuire specifically references it, even modifies his summary, the motion to dismiss order to more fit his summary judgment order. And so that was argued in the motion to dismiss, Your Honor. And then a follow-up, too. Uh, are you asking for monetary damages or an injunction? I'd like to be clear on what it is you're asking for. Well, and Your Honor, when it comes to enforcing these, the uh, consent order, the 10-year consent order, it would be specific performance. That's what we'd be asking for. Get the benefit. Did you argue that in, in your briefs? Did we argue that in our brief for the, the appeal? Or yes, the in the appeal before us. Your Honor, I don't believe that we mentioned what relief we're asking for. I don't think that that was mentioned. Um, but that is what the complaint mentions, that we're asking for specific performance. Um, and it's certainly something that we argue to the jury. And also monetary damages or not? Monetary damages associated with the torts, Your Honor. Correct. That is correct. Okay, thank you. I think that might be a good time to uh, kind of switch gears just briefly and let's talk about our summary judgment motion and how the, the court clearly indicated that there was no genuine issue material fact as to uh, Mr. Trenton's breach of either the customer's restriction or the supplier's restriction. Now with the supplier's restriction, Judge McGuire found that there was an ambiguity because of the and or language, Your Honor. Now interestingly, he was relying upon a case that he uh, was a part of this, the blue pencil in the Wells Fargo, this blue pencil doctrine that he was relying upon in his prior case to say that this and or language in our situation meant that there was an ambiguity. That case, the Wells Fargo case is certainly distinguishable from our situation. Either how you read it, whether it be and or in terms of Mr. Tutton's breach of it, he breached all three aspects of the consent order. Aren't there occasions, though, in which there were potentially contacts, but not the other two things, like solicitations or agreements of business? In other words, so you could have one, but not two or three? There were probably situations that that did occur, but there was also situations does, that does, all three... Does, doesn't that, in your argument, at least as I understand it, is that any contact, regardless of whether it involved a solicitation or actually entering into a business agreement, is a violation of the uh, consent judgment. That is correct. Now, How is there not an ambiguity as to whether you have to have all three of those criteria or only one of them, given the language that we've got in the agreement before us? Well, and Your Honor, you could read it. However you read it, he breached it. Whether there's an and or, he breached it. Because there are situations where he did all three. 
Don't you have to, don't you have to, in order to establish damages, decide what uh, the prerequisites are for the showing of a violation? Well, sure, the breaches, Your Honor. Well, how, the, how, is that, how is that not then in order to have so – you've asked for judgment to be entered in your favor with respect to that issue, which would include an award of relief, I think. If that's the case, how is there not a, a, an issue of fact as to, at a minimum, what relief you'd be entitled to? Well, Your Honor, that's okay. – I understand what you're saying. You're asking about whether or not we, we requested there be a because because your request is that judgment be entered in your favor with respect to this claim, which includes an award of relief. Sure. And we were requesting that he be held account on the consent order, and that that there would be specific performance to that effect, Your Honor. But if you don't know whether he's prohibited from doing A, B, and C, or A, B, or C, how do you enter a specific performance order? Well, Your Honor, you find the specific performance order that he's violating it. And for those incidences, certainly where there's all three implicated, and then because of that, but we that, haven't. That, but that's not what your motion asked for. Your motion asked that summary judgment be entered in your favor on the basis of your interpretation of the contract, right? Well, sure, Your Honor. Sure. And what I was trying to point out with Judge McGuire and his interpretation of it, it was misapplying what the and or in his prior case, the Wells Fargo case, was finding. Because in the prior case, it was application of the blue pencil doctrine and using it against the drafter. And in this situation, both parties drafted it as a consent order. And so using the and or language that he had in his prior case was an misapplication of that blue pencil doctrine, Your Honor. Thank you. Getting back to, there is no disputed fact, um, and the court noted that in the summary judgment order, that Mr. Tutton violated the supplier's agreement at minimum. He also violated the customer's restriction as well. Because of that, summary judgment should have been granted in our favor, um, at minimum on the supplier's restriction, Your Honor. Thank you. I think I have my five minutes left for rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you, Counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. Thank you, Your Honor. It please the court. Um, my name is Stuart Punger. I'm here on behalf of the defendant, Appalese, Mr. Tutton, and ITAC. I want to make something clear in the beginning that neither collateral estoppel nor waiver, even if the court finds those relevant to the consent order, neither of those doctrines apply to the settlement agreement. And here it's important to keep these two documents separate. And the reason that's important is because the settlement agreement is the only one of these documents that references liquidated damages or mentions liquidated damages. Well, before, before you go any further into that, and I trust you will at some point, let me ask you the question that both the chief and I ask your colleague. What jurisdiction does this court have over this case now? Your Honor, uh, I didn't see that it was addressed in your brief, so I'm, I'm asking you to help us uh, deal with the subject to the extent that you can. Yes, Your Honor. Um, as I recall, there was a specific provision that allowed a direct appeal from a business court decision to the Supreme Court, and that was my understanding as to how... Um, well, is it your position that any appeal from, from a business court order, whether it's final or interlocutory, comes here as a matter of right without the necessity for any further showing? 
Your Honor, as you saw in my brief, I, I did not address or analyze that question. I know the court always has the authority to bring up whether an appeal is interlocutory, but it was my reading of that statute that, and I couldn't find a lot of case law interpreting that, that statute and whether it's interlocutory or not, but it was my reading of that statute that allowing a summary judgment order to be appealed directly to the Supreme Court would, would give them jurisdiction. Okay. If, if we were to go that route, wouldn't that uh, just pretty much dictate that we're going to get piecemeal appeals which fly in the face of the policy that uh, we wait until final judgment, generally speaking? That is a very valid concern, Your Honor, uh, that it may, may lead to that result. Um, I, that's how I, I found that statute odd, but that was how I, I, I read that statute, that they could go from the business court to this court. Um, but I certainly understand that that's a concern for this court to have a flood of appeals from business court decisions. So let me ask a follow-up about that. Um, typically, if there's an appeal taken to this court or to the Court of Appeals from an interlocutory order, um, it's dismissible for lack of jurisdiction unless there's a showing on the part of the appellant that it affects a substantial right. Um, and uh, am I hearing you correctly that that's not an issue that you addressed or uh, in your brief or care to address today? Whether it does or does not affect a substantial right as that's defined in our case law? I did not address that in, in my brief, Your Honor. Um, if, I, if you'd like to have me address it today, um, I, I'm not sure how it's a substantial right because it's really a question of what are the damages in this case. And, this case could have gone on to trial and it could have been resolved then. Um, and then all of these questions about what was the proper law to bring um, could have been brought at that time. Uh, but I, I did not address it in my brief. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it, it sounds as if your position is that you're not really um, arguing that it does affect a substantial right, that it's more sort of just a regular question of the issue of damages and et cetera. Yes, Your Honor. Okay. Thank you very much. So turning back to the difference between the consent order and the settlement agreement, um, as you heard counsel for KNC say, these are two separate and distinct documents. Um, the settlement agreement is the only one of these documents that references liquidated damages. And to touch on a, a question of yours, um, Justice Morgan, the consent order was drafted by the parties, um, according to the record at least, because if you look at the settlement agreement on page 29 of the record, it says the proposed consent order for permanent injunction is attached as Exhibit A to the settlement agreement. And there's no reference in the consent order um, that the settlement agreement was attached to the consent order. Uh, so Judge McGuire looked at this as one integrated contract between these two documents. Because we're in a kind of an interesting procedural position here, because below the business court, after motion to dismiss, all the parties in Judge McGuire were addressing all of this as a, a breach of contract claim. Um, so if you look at their arguments on collateral estoppel, that addresses whether the consent order was a final judgment. If you look at their arguments as to waiver, that's based on either Tutton's counsel signing the consent order, or if you look in the consent order, it has a line that says, defendant waives any and all rights to seek modification to or relief from this injunction. Um, until its natural expiration. So nothing in the consent order is Tutton waiving his right to challenge a settlement agreement. And so to get back to a question that you asked earlier, uh, Justice Merger, what they asked for in their complaint were damages. Their complaint is always amount, 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 amount. 
They never asked for specific performance in the complaint. They never asked for um, a show cause order as to why the injunction should be upheld. According to the record, this case is about damages. And so if the settlement agreement is analyzed as far as it's a liquidated damage as a penalty, and that is, you uphold Judge McGuire's ruling that the liquidated damages position was a penalty, when this case goes back down to trial, KNC will be left showing their actual damages. Because as they were arguing, their liquidated damages were well over $3 million. And so we were asked, we, we want this court to focus on if anything is sent back down, the liquidated damages holding of Justice McGuire's order is upheld. Because uh, like I said, the, yeah, the consent order, it never makes any findings of fact or determinations or conclusions regarding the settlement agreement or the consent or the liquidated damages provision. And just to follow up on that point, if the parties had wanted to, they could have asked the court to enter a consent order that incorporated fully the settlement agreement, correct? I believe they could. Yeah. But, but in this instance, they didn't. No, and that kind of gets to my, my next question, because it seems like both at summary judgment and today, um, KNC hasn't made any arguments as to why, or rebutting Judge McGuire's findings of fact and conclusions of law, that the liquidated damages provision was an unenforceable penalty. So I think getting into what you were just asking about, is the consent order a final judgment on the merits? Or is it just a contract between the parties? It's our position it's just a contract between the parties because there are no findings of fact, there are no conclusions of law, there is no judicial analysis or adjudication of the rights of the parties. Um, if you go through- But you would counsel, agree- I'm, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. You, you would agree, sorry, just one last follow-up. You would agree that the consent order, the terms of that order are enforceable by contempt? No, I would not, Your Honor. You don't? Before a consent order to be enforceable by contempt, the trial court must have found, uh, made findings of fact, made conclusions of law, and um, had an adjudication of the rights of the parties. I think the, um, the Eyeball v. Tate case is, is one that we cite. There are a number of cases in our brief that we cite to say that a consent order, which is merely a contract by the parties, is not one that either party can enforce by contempt. But, but the, the court here does appear to believe that it is entering an injunction. The, the trial court signed a document that said injunction. And there's nothing in the record about exactly how that document got to the trial court, but the words injunction are in that, that document. Yes, Your Honor. And the parties call it an injunction in the settlement agreement when they refer to it. They do, Your Honor. And I think the case that is most on point regarding this issue about how the injunction plays in is the PCI Energy Services versus Watts case from the Court of Appeals. And in that case, there was a consent order entered. And the very next day, the, the defendant went and arguably violated it. And they had a question of could the injunction be enforced by contempt. And in that case, it was it was procedurally different here because in the uh, PCI case, the initial preliminary injunction was the result of a contested hearing and the same judge held the case um, the entire way through. And in that case, when the, the judge um, reviewed the settlement agreement, the record showed that there the judge did more than rubber stamp as a use of court of appeals used, 
but it actually referenced the settlement agreement, it analyzed the settlement agreement, it incorporated the settlement agreement. Um, and so here, it, below in Tutton 1, there was never an adjudication of the rights as to the injunctions because the initial preliminary injunction in Tutton 1 was a consent injunction. And then when, when the, this document was handed up to the court, um, Scythe County Superior Court, there, there's no analysis of the settlement agreement. There's no findings of fact. There's no conclusion of law. There is um, no adjudication of the rights of the parties. Um, and in the PCI case, it said, um, when a trial court is going to use its contempt powers to enforce a consent judgment, it must demonstrate that it has carefully read the settlement agreement, considered its legal effect, and should sim not simply rubber stamp the agreement. So here, Your Honor, we would say that this document, the consent order for preliminary injunction, is simply a contract between the parties to be analyzed as a contract, and it could be similar to how the court in Wells versus City of Wilmington looked at the, the contract and, and consent order in that case. Because in, in that case, Your Honor, we also had an agreement born out of litigation, born out of attorneys being represented, and the question was in the consent judgment um, what to do with um, uh, whether or not the City of Wilmington could use land for a hotel. And in that case, the Court of Appeals said that when reviewing a consent judgment that's a contract, courts are not bound to the four corners of the contract. But there, the court said that um, the original intent is to be inferred from the words. However, to interpret the nature and import of the consent judgment more precisely, courts are not bound by the four corners of the document itself. The agreement usually reflecting the intricate course of events surrounding the particular litigation also should be interpreted in the light of the controversy and the purposes intended to be accomplished by it. So I think that kind of tracks back into what Judge McGuire ultimately held, that, that this document, consent order, was a contract between the parties, and the type of contract was one dealing with the restraint of trade. Because in the Wells versus City of Wilmington, the Court of Appeals said, what type of contract are we dealing with here? Here we're dealing one that deals with the restriction and alienation of sale of real property. So let's go look at what North Carolina cases say on restrictions of, and sale of real property. So in this case, we have a consent order that's a contract between the parties. What type of contract? It's a contract involving restraint of trade. Judge McGuire was correct that it wasn't a typical employer-employee contract. It wasn't a typical franchisor-franchisee contract. It wasn't a typical you know, sale of business contract, but it still was a contract involving restraint of trade, and therefore he said and held that um, a hybrid test should be used with the an ultimate standard being, are the restrictions no more um, restrictive than necessary to um, uh, advance the legitimate business interest of, of KNC? And as, as um, Judge McGuire analyzed in his uh, business court opinion, he found that the customer provision was much more broad than necessary to protect the legitimate business interests of KNC because typically looking at, um, at the line of cases on that point, you can only restrict an, someone from reaching out to contacts he made or she made while employed. It, 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 at least it, it, as I read your colleague's brief, there's been no argument advanced that 
the trial court impermissibly applied the usual, the usual test applicable to covenants not to compete. Is that right? That is how I read that, Your Honor. I, mean, I read their argument to mean you never should have gotten there, but they don't seem to make an alternative argument that says, assuming without deciding that you should have gotten there, the trial court was wrong. I would agree with that, Your Honor. I mean, in, in their summary judgment brief, they actually concede that a hybrid test should be used. Well, and, and, and also it does not appear to me to, that the brief contests the appropriateness of the manner in which the Court of Appeals applied the hybrid test. It appears to me the only argument that they've made is that that test should have never been applied in the first place, that instead the language of the consent agreement is clear and unambiguous and should have been applied as written, and they seem to stop at that point. Is that a fair reading of their brief as you see it? Yes, Your Honor. Is this hybrid test, as you style it, one that is unique to this case because of the uniqueness of the circumstance, or is it one that you feel can and should be institutionalized when you have these kinds of restraint on trade provisions? So I, I think the hybrid test we're arguing for wasn't created for this case. Um, Judge McGuire relied on it, the outdoor lighting case of the Court of Appeals um, as his um, guidepost for how to deal with this particular case. Um, this is obviously a unique case, um, and as was outdoor lighting, a unique case, and that's why prior, following the prior orders of this court, the standard should be, are the restrictions no more restrictive than necessary to protect le legitimate business interests? And I think that should be the um, affirmed standard of this court in how to deal with a restraint of trade in an unusual situation that doesn't fit neatly in other categories. But what I'm referring to is whether or not this should be considered to be, quote, the, unquote, hybrid test as opposed to, quote, a, unquote, hybrid test in terms of how to resolve these kinds of issues. I believe, Your Honor, that the hybrid test articulated in outdoor lighting should be the approach, the hybrid test to use in unique situations involving restraint of trade. So, said another way, should the outdoor lighting test that was employed be directly employed here, or are you saying that business courts or trial courts in general should be authorized to, as in outdoor lighting, apply some hybrid test that fits the circumstances? I believe they should find a fact-specific hybrid test that fits that fits the circumstances before it with the guiding principle being are these restrictions no more um, reasonable than necessary to protect a legitimate business interest but kind of fit the, the particular facts of your case within that that standard turning to um, uh, other items that were brought up in the uh, appellant's brief your honors they, on collateral estoppel, I'll, I'll touch on this briefly. Um, collateral estoppel was, was briefly mentioned by the business court in the motion to dismiss. Um, the business court analysis stopped at kind of point one. The consent order is not a final judgment. If it's not a final judgment, collateral estoppel will not apply. Um, if this court finds that the consent order was a final judgment, then that doesn't end the analysis of whether or not collateral estoppel applies because you still need to look at the, are we re-litigating issues already litigated in Tutton 1, 
and necessary to the outcome of Tutton One. Does, uh, does your client's waiver of findings of fact and conclusions of law uh, make the consent order a final judgment? I don't believe so, Your Honor. Why not? I think that the case law says that you still, the court has to make a finding of fact, conclusion of law, and an adjudication. I don't think that um, the parties can, can change the court's power in, in that respect. Um, there was, I believe, the Eyeball v. Tate case, which is similar. There, the parties wanted to put in a, into a consent order that it was enforceable by contempt, and the courts held that that wasn't proper. The parties just couldn't stick in to increase or decrease the court's power that this consent order was going to be punishable or enforceable by contempt, you had to look at what did the court do. Did the court have a finding of fact? Did it have a conclusion of law? Was there an adjudication of the rights? There, there are a number of, or any number of, uh, mediations that take place every day throughout the state. Uh, would your position uh, on whether or not this is a final judgment uh, have a chilling effect on settlements through mediations? I don't believe so, Your Honor. Um, settlements through mediations fall apart from time to time, and if they are a settlement through mediation, the parties are left with a breach of contract action um, for specific performance or from damages resulting from that breach of contract. Well, if, um, if, if parties go to custody mediation, is the agreement that's reached in custody mediation merely a contract, or is it uh, enforceable by contempt? I believe there is a distinction in the line of cases on the final judgment being um, enforceable by contempt. There is a carve-out for a different line of cases dealing with, with domestic issues, divorce issues, and child custody issues. Um, but on the line of cases where, where we were more dealing with a typical dispute between, between parties, um, you need the findings of fact and conclusions of law and adjudication of, of rights before a consent order can be enforceable through contempt. Did that answer your question? It, it does. Thank you. Okay. But on the on the question of waiver, I um, want to understand what your under, what your view is of paragraph nine of the order because it says this injunction shall not require the posting of any bond and shall dissolve automatically on August thirty first, twenty twenty four. And then it says, it is a final order of the court, and defendant waives any and all rights to seek modification to or relief from its terms until its natural expiration. What does that language mean if this is not a final order and there's no waiver? That's a good question. I'm not sure exactly what that language means. I, I don't think it was written the, the most clearly. Uh, but I think at most what it's meaning is that um, it would be that, that, that Tutton would either waive his right to appeal what happened in this case. So a lot of the waiver cases signed, um, cited by KNC say that if you reach an agreement to resolve the underlying issues of your case, you cannot appeal within that order. So for here, Mr. Tutton um, couldn't appeal that he still had his counterclaims. His counterclaims have been dismissed. Um, and Otherwise, if you want to take it a step farther, the, the most I believe this could say is that that Tutton may be waiving his right to say what customers and suppliers restrictions meant. But I think if you look at the cases on waiver, um, these cases always call for a more intentional, knowing, voluntary, you know, um, 
relinquishment or knowing waiver of that right. And here the record is completely devoid as to what Tutton or KNC thought that meant. It was never asked of any party in their depositions. And that's because this waiver issue wasn't really before the business court. It wasn't briefed or argued or ruled on at summary judgment. There was no sites to the record. So it, we're certainly left um, unclear as to what, what the parties meant by that. But on waiver, the, the question is one of intention, um, and the, the uh, courts have held that waiver must be manifested in an unequivocal manner. And so this line in paragraph 9, signed um, not by Mr. Tutton but by his attorney, I, I don't think shows that he waived his right in an unequivocal manner to, to question what, what some of these terms mean. I mean, if you just look at, and we're not exactly dealing with this, but um, number five in the consent order, that um, Tutton was prohibited from in, and enjoined from disparaging, defaming, slandering, and or maligning. I mean, that's not before the court now, those issues, but if it were, I don't think that he would have waived his defenses that this statement wasn't defaming simply by signing paragraph nine. I, I don't think that putting that in there means that, that, that Tutton is later has barred any waiver to any interpretation of this consent order. Again, in, in their brief to, to, the, um, to this court, and as little it was argued in front of the business court, all they're relying on is, is this signature of, of Mr. Tutton's attorney as for waiver. And if you look at the other cases, the McNally versus Allstate case, Fetner versus Rocky Mount, and the, the Butner versus Charlotte Board of Education cases, in none of those cases did the court find there was waiver. I mean, they're always looking for true intent, intention, knowledge of a right existing at the time. Um, and so I, I don't think that you can look back at the, the rights that, that Tutton has on, it is in the record, I'll, I'll kind of diverge for a second, it, it is in the record that Tutton said when he looked at this, what he thought customers meant were those co companies, those people that, that he had worked with. You know, th that's what he thought he was signing up for. Th that is in the record from his deposition. And if you look at the business court's order, it, it goes through in good detail that there are 10 potential customers that they're saying that Tutton violated. Of those seven, he had no contact with while he was employed in KNC. Some of those KNC had done no work for for approximately eight years before they sought to enforce this. And they were, had you know, one job years before, but they, they weren't through Tutton. Um, but an analytically, we don't get to this issue uh, if, unless uh, we were to conclude that the trial court had erred in granting summary judgment in your favor with respect to the customer restrictions, right? That is correct. So that's not what you're arguing now. Again, I'm just trying to make sure what's before us yeah. and what's not. That's not before us. That, that's correct, Your Honor. Okay. I, I was just trying to get to that to answer that other question. I'm just trying to, keep, trying to keep straight here. Thank you, Your Honor. And I guess just to address some a few other cases that were cited in their brief. On, on waiver, they seem to have a, a two-pronged argument. One, by paragraph nine, is a waiver. And then a, a slightly different argument 
that by Tutton's attorney signing this document, that means that there's knowledge and consent and waiver. But if you look at the cases that they cite for that issue, those are all cases where the attorney signed a document resolving the case at hand and the party trying to revive up that case at hand. So here it would be like we signed this document and then Tutton says, no, 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 I, I want my counterclaim back. Um, so for instance, in the Greenhill case that, that was cited, there an attorney signs a voluntary dismissal with prejudice and he does that twice. And so he signs two voluntary dismissals without prejudice. And the second one becomes one with prejudice and there the plaintiff said, no, no, I, I want to go back and file my lawsuit again. I, I don't want that voluntary dismissal with prejudice. And the court said, well, your attorney acted on your behalf. They have the authority to do that. We're going to uphold both of these signed voluntary dismissals with prejudice, which is a, a, a different fact pattern than what we have here in front of us today. Um, and then in the, the, the Royal and Hartle case and, and Price v. Dobson, those were both cases where they um, – resolve the issue at hand and they wanted to appeal within the case itself and here what we're really arguing is how this these settlement documents the consent order and the settlement agreement should be looking at going forward um, not how they looked at going back So, Your Honors, I, I guess in conclusion where I, I would say your analysis should go is step one, was the consent order a final adjudication on the merits or a contract between the parties? Is our position that the court in Tutton 1 didn't draft the consent order, didn't have findings of fact, didn't have conclusions of law, didn't make an adjudication of the rights, therefore the consent order in Tutton 1 is merely a contract between the parties. It's not enforceable by contempt. When you're looking at it as a contract between the parties, then what do you do? As the Wells versus City of Wilmington case says, you can look outside the four corners of the agreement, look at the specific situation at hand. The appropriate situation at hand here was the outdoor lighting test used by Judge McGuire. And once you get there, no one's really questioning how his uh, opinion was, was reached. If you do find that it was a, a, a proper order of the court, then you've got to look at does collateral estoppel bar anything else? And just finding it as an order doesn't end the analysis. You then need to look at what was actually litigated and resolved by the consent order. And so what was not resolved was, is the customer provision overly broad? Is the liquidated damages clause enforceable or a penalty? And is there an ambiguity in the supplier's provision? Because none of those cases were litigated, none of those questions were litigated in Tutton 1. If Tutton 1 were to have gone to trial, none of those, there would be no evidence on those points at that trial. There would have been no questions about any of that at the verdict form. None of that was litigated in Tutton 1. So collateral estoppel shouldn't apply. And your honors, if you're going to look at waiver, that needs to be clear unequivocal and with knowledge. So there's nothing in the consent order that applies for waiver and certainly nothing in the settlement agreement that applies for waiver. They haven't even argued waiver as far as the settlement agreement. Um, these were two distinct documents. 
and they were only combined as far as a, a contract, not an order of the court. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honors. Um, I just want to briefly touch on uh, counsel's comments about Wells versus City of Wilmington case. I want to make sure to clear up some potential confusion with that case, Your Honor. While, yes, the court did look at the consent judgment as a contract, it also went on to state that where the plain language of the consent judgment is clear, the original intent of the parties inferred from its words. It didn't go in to read into that contract something beyond the four corners of the contract, Your Honor. That case did not stand for the proposition that a court can look at an unambiguous consent order or consent judgment and infuse its own opinions and words into that, Your Honor. I also want to briefly touch on uh, the waiver argument and signing by counsel of the consent order. And Justice Berger brought that up. Uh, it, we're going to get down a slippery slope if consent orders that are signed by counsel are then not enforceable because you don't, you don't have your client's, uh, I guess, what's the word, knowledge or intent or authority, that would then mean that any time that an attorney signs a consent order or any pleading for that matter, then the client could come back and say, no, 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 that is not my, given my authority. I should not be held account for that, and that is not enforceable. That's a very slippery slope that we would be going on, Your Honors, if we did not enforce the consent order in this situation merely because it was signed by counsel. And Justice McGuire, in his summary judgment order, that's why it's here in front of us today, specifically references the waiver and this idea that it was not proven that merely because the attorney signed the consent order that Mr. Hutton agreed to those terms, Your Honor. It is clear from the record that Mr. Tutton should be held account from the consent order. That is a final judgment. He should be held to those restrictions that he agreed to. Those are not restrictions that should be analyzed on the outdoor lighting. And Justice Morgan, to bring up your idea about the hybrid, this, in this situation, it should even get to a hybrid analysis. It should just be purely contract, a contract review, Your Honor. And even setting aside to the consent order aspect of it, it is a final judgment, so we should not even get to the analysis of the language in it. It's collaterally stopped from being reviewed, Your Honors. So um, I would request that you overrule uh, the summary judgment order as it applies to the granting of the summary judgment for the defendant and that you grant summary judgment in the favor of the plaintiff. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you, counsel. Thank you, everyone. Thank <laughs>